It's June 6th, 1944. You're in a Higgins boat charging across the English Channel. Your destination is Juneau Beach, Normandy. In that boat with you are 30 other soldiers, men who are armed to fight. You're crammed shoulder to shoulder. One of the men next to you vomits, whether it's, it's from the rough seas or fear or both, you don't know. But as you approach the shore, artillery shells began to land all around your boat, sending up showers of water. As you look ahead, you can see that the massive concrete wall and the, the, the bunkers and the, the pillboxes and the, the machine gun emplacements, you know that in that, in that hillside are thousands, tens of thousands of men, each of whom is eager to take your life. As you approach the shore, even above the sound of the explosions, you can hear the tink, tink, tink of bullets hitting the armed front plating of your boat. The boat hits the beach with a thud, making you fall to your knees. As the, the, the boat ramp drops, the men around you are mowed down by enemy machine gun fire. You hit the deck and gasp in horror as you see what once was one of your best buddies. You crawl off the boat as quickly as your wobbling legs will carry you. You plunge into the icy water that is red with blood. There's bodies floating all around you. Miraculously, you make it to shore and take cover behind a hen balcon, the beams that have been used by the Germans to prevent the landing craft from making it to shore. And it's only then that you catch your breath and you survey what is going on around you. The beach is strewn with dead and dying men. Artillery explosions send sand and debris flying 30 feet into the air. Machine guns rain death as bullets rip through the air all around you. Then, out of the corner of your eye, you see something completely unexpected. You must be imagining things. You, you do a double take and rub your eyes, but you're seeing it right. Right there in the middle of the beach is a group of sunbathers. They are lying there, catching rays, in their bathing suits, half asleep, oblivious to what is going on all around them. I wonder, are you sometimes like a sunbather on Juno Beach, oblivious to the battle that is raging all around you? Now this battle that we're talking about this morning is not visible, but it is just as real and far more deadly than that battle was. Your enemy is a sinister master strategist, and he has you in his sights. His weapons are far more vicious and far more lethal than artillery shells and machine gun bullets. Beloved in the church, people tend to, to fall into one of two ditches when it comes to spiritual warfare. Either we focus too much on demonic activity, or we tend to ignore it altogether. And I think many in our circles would, would tend to fall into the latter category. We, we tend to, to disregard 
spiritual warfare. We don't really give Satan and his schemes, and his schemes very much thought. But that wasn't always the case in the, in the history of the church. Men who, who, who studied God's word, men who were champions in the word of God, knew the importance of understanding these things. The, the Puritan Thomas Brooks, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, wrote, Christ, the scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. I have to say, personally, I tend to focus on three out of the four. I, I tend to focus on Christ. I tend to focus on His Word. I, I tend, I tend to, to think about my own heart, the weakness of my own heart, but I have not very often considered Satan's schemes to my own downfall. I wonder, does that describe you? Maybe you focus on, on three out of the four. Maybe you focus on, on fewer than that. But, but are you aware of what the devil is doing? Brooks continued, said, It is my work as a Christian, much more as, as I am a watchman, to do my best to discover the fullness of Christ, the emptiness of the creature, and the snares of the great deceiver. Beloved, I am a watchman on a wall. And it's my job this morning to sound the trumpet. This is a call to arms. The Ephesian Christians were no strangers to spiritual warfare, but they had been on the wrong side of the battle. Remember, many of them would have been worshippers of Artemis. The, the temple of Artemis dominated the Ephesian skyline. And many of these Christians had once worshipped her. Artemis was the, the patron goddess of, of Ephesus. And, and, they, and the pagans sought her for protection over them and over their city. But she was in actual fact a representation of demonic forces. Now Paul is explaining how and why the Ephesian Christians and we need God's strength for protection from, from those and from all evil forces. The devil and his horde are on the offensive. They want to destroy us. Brothers and sisters, we are at war. And the forces that are arrayed against us are formidable. And so we need the Lord's protection if we are going to stand. So we'll see in this passage, we are all soldiers. But we are soldiers in a defensive position. And our task as Christians is to stand firm. Our task as Christians is to hold the ground that has already been won for us in Christ. In this letter, Paul has magnified God's glorious purpose in Christ, the greatness of his calling. And from the beginning of chapter 4, he talked about what it means to live a life that is worthy of that calling in our church and in our homes. And now with this last section of the letter, Paul is sounding the trumpet to warn us that we are living in the middle of a deadly spiritual battle. First in verse 10, Paul tells us what we need to do. 
He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Victory in this battle requires great strength. Now, for some reason, all of the, the major English translations say, say, be strong. But the verb would actually be better translated, be strengthened. This is a passive, uh, this is a, a present passive verb. On your own, you will never, ever be strong enough to win this battle. No matter how often you go to the gym and lift weights, you're not strong enough. No matter how strong you think you are spiritually, you're not strong enough. You need the Lord's strength to stand in this war. So you need to be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of His might. This is yet another in the Lord that we've seen so often through the book of Ephesians. And these, these, this phrase means, means Jesus Christ. You need to be strong in Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. We all need the very strength of the Lord to fight this battle. We need His might. We need His strength. And if you remember, Paul has already prayed for the Ephesian Christians that they would be strong. Remember his prayer from, from uh, verse, or chapter 1, verses 16 to 23. In verse 19, he prayed that, that the Christians would know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the work of his great, great might. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in Christians. And also in 3.16, he prayed that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in, the, in your inner being. I am praying this for you. Are you praying this for you? Paul wants us to be strengthened in the Lord, and, and now he tells us how to do that. Verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. You need the Lord's strength. And he gives it to you in the form of what Paul calls the armor of God. Now remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter. He was in a Roman prison. He had ample opportunity to see Roman soldiers in full armor. We've had plenty of time to consider what, the, what that armor mean, meant and, and, and how there was, it, was, it became a spiritual metaphor for the battle that we are in. Now we're going to be talking about the individual pieces of that armor over the next few weeks, but the emphasis here is, is, is on the whole armor of God. And that this is God's armor. This is a spiritual battle and it requires spiritual armor. Now there's a sense in which the, the armor of God is the armor of the Lord of hosts that he, he dons in order to fight for his people. We'll see that next week from Isaiah. But, but we'll also see that there's a sense in which this, the, that God is the source of this armor that He provides it for His people, that He provides it for us. But as we see so often in God's Word, we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, that there is a, a personal responsibility. God provides the armor, 
and you have to put it on. This is repeated in verse 13 where he changes the verb. It's, it's take up the whole armor of God. There's really a strong parallel here to what we saw repeatedly in chapters 4 and 5. That, that this putting on of armor is, is tantamount to putting on the new self. And remember we saw that week after week. Put off the old self, put on the new self. And we saw that, that this was worked out practically in, in many different areas of our lives. And, and so putting on the armor of God, part of it is like it's, it involves putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Putting on the identity that you have been given in Christ. We'll see that more um, in, in, the, in the coming weeks. But think about Romans 13.12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now here in the second half of verse 11, you see why you must be strengthened in the Lord's might. Why you must put on the armor of God. That you may stand, be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The purpose of putting on the armor of God is so that you can stand and the word that's translated here, stand, means not to be moved, to, to, means to stand firm. It, it's a defensive posture. So the soldier on the line holds his position. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't back down. He doesn't fall down. He stands firm. Now there's other passages in the scriptures that, that talk about, that imply going on the offensive, but when it comes to... to this particular passage, it's defensive. You've heard it said that the, 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 best, uh, the best defense is a good offense. What Paul is talking about here in, in this particular battle, when it comes to fighting him, that the best offense is a good defense. You need to stand firm. Louis, Louis Mary Schaefer said, As pilgrims we walk, as witnesses we go, as contenders we run, and as fighters we stand. We stand. Well, what is it that you're standing against? The schemes of the devil. He is plotting against you. He is plotting your downfall. Last week on the news, I, I, you might have heard the story about a reporter who had been writing about gangs in Vancouver. And then she was part of a, a murder trial. She, she found out that, that several years ago that this, that this particular gang had been, had been discussing her murder. They were plotting her murder. And it's, it's a really interesting article that she wrote about the murder trial in which she was writing about the plot to take her own life. She talked about how, how gang members had been driven down her street and had gone down the alley behind her house looking for ways that they might be able to get at her to kill her. Now, thankfully, they, they did not carry out that murder. And she only found out about it years later. But, but imagine if she hadn't known at the time. She hadn't known about that plot to take her life and, and how she might have responded and, and what steps she might have taken to protect herself. Well, you have been informed of the plot that is against you. And the plot is far more sinister and far more deadly than that of any gang. The one who is plotting against you is the devil himself. 
In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul writes of not being outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The devil is a liar. And the word devil actually means slanderer. He is the father of lies, John 8.44. And so lies and deception are at the core of his schemes against you. He usually does not engage in a full frontal assault. Instead, he uses cunning and subterfuge to catch you off guard. Well, for a few moments here, let's, let's think about what are some of the key schemes that the devil uses against you. Heresy. False teaching. Again, the devil is, is called a deceiver. He's the father of lives. And so, so where did, and where and who do you think all of the, the false teaching ultimately comes from. All the false teaching that has been in the church since its inception has been inspired by the devil. It's not just bad teachers with bad exegesis. Paul had spoken in Ephesians 4 of, of the gifts to the church that they are to equip the saints so that we will grow into maturity and not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Ephesians 4.14. Friend, the devil is the source of those deceitful schemes. 1 Timothy 4.1. In the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. 1 John 4.1 Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone into the world. So the devil seeks to corrupt the church and you through false teaching of God's word. The devil can't change what the Bible means. And he can corrupt your understanding. He won't cause you to, to reject the whole thing. But he'll adjust it. So that doesn't say what it really says. And it quite often will, will fit with your presuppositions. When, when you approach the Word of God with your ideas about who God is and, and how God operates, and you let your presuppositions dictate your understanding, instead of submitting to God's word, then you are playing into the devil's schemes. You must submit to God's word. In the screw tape letter, C.S. Lewis's story describing a senior devil's advice to his nephew Wormwood, he wrote, A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. The devil tries to corrupt your religion. He tries to moderate it by undermining the truth. That's part of the reason why you need to know your Bible well, to interpret your Bible correctly, to believe your Bible entirely, every single word of it. I'm getting ahead of myself here. We're going to talk a lot about that, a lot more about that over the next couple of weeks, especially when we get to verse 17. So heresy, false teaching is one of the, 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 the key schemes of the devil. Temptation. Another way that the devil is described in the Bible is as a tempter. He tempted Eve in the garden. He tempted Jesus in the desert. And he is tempting you too. Now the devil is not omniscient. But he's been at this for a long time. And he's good at it. He's been watching you. He knows your weaknesses. 
He knows the areas that you are prone to fall, and He will wait until you are weak, when He can take you down and cause the maximum amount of carnage in your life and the lives of those around you. But you can't blame the devil for your sin. It's not the devil made me do it, because your flesh is often complicit. Your flesh often works in agreement with the devil to achieve his ends. In John Bunyan's allegory, The Holy War, describes a de the demonic assault on the town of Mansoul. And he explains in that book that the way that the enemy enters the, the city gates of Mansoul is through the five senses, the ear gate, the eye gate, the mouth gate, the nose gate, and the feel gate. When you seek to indulge the flesh through your senses, then you are already a long way towards being in big trouble. Your flesh toys with temptation, like a bass testing the bait before it's hooked. Klein Snodgrass explains that evil rarely looks evil until it has accomplished its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. And that takes us to the next main scheme that the devil uses against you. First, the devil is your tempter, and then when you take the bait, he becomes your accuser. Accusation is another one of the power, powerful schemes that Satan uses against you. Accuser is another one of his names. Revelation 12.10. In fact, devil, again, means slanderer. What if, does this sound familiar to you? God's not going to forgive you. He's already forgiven you for that a hundred times. Or you can't go to church. You don't deserve to go to church. You can't pray. You can't read your Bible. Does, does that sound familiar? These are the tactics that the enemy will often whisper in your ear. And they are all lies. Beloved, God will always listen to a repentant sinner who is seeking rescue from Jesus Christ. The voice that would tell you not to go to church, not to pray, not to read your Bible, is always the enemy's voice. When you're tempted to not go to church, when you're tempted to not pray, tempted to not read your Bible, you need to see that as just that, as a temptation. And you need to fight it as a temptation. You need the whole armor of God. You need to preach God's word to yourself. That is the sword of the Spirit. When the devil accuses you, remember that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. You need the whole armor if you want to stand. The, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, gospel shoes, the, sh the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. Again, Satan is not omniscient, and nor is he omnipresent. But he has demons assigned to you. He can't read your mind, but he is very clever. And he's had great success in what he does. And one of the ways that he controls you is through fear. Fear. We see also in God's word that there is no fear in love, but perfect love 
casts out fear. What, what is the thing that you fear the most? Well, for many people, it's death. Many people fear death the most, but, but Jesus has overcome him who has the power of death. Hebrews 2.14 if, if, you, if you're not even afraid of death, then you have nothing to fear. You love God. But that takes us to the who that we're standing against. Verse 12. Who we're standing against and who we're, we're struggling against. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, this is not a fleshly battle. 2 Corinthians 10.4 For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now the terms that are used here in verse 12, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, all refer to the same beings. That They're really talking about these different descriptions are really describing the same spiritual reality. Demons are evil through and through. They are characterized by the exact opposite of God's nature. God is love. They are hatred. God is truth. They are lies. God is life. They are death. God is goodness. They are evil. God is holy. They are defiled. God is merciful. They are cruel. Why is it that, that we so often allow ourselves to follow after the enemy of our souls instead of, of the God who died that we might have life? Now this word that is, is, uh, is translated here against is used six times in these, these, in these two verses, verses 11 and 12. It implies close quarters. It implies hand-to-hand -hand combat. Likewise, wrestle. Pictures the same thing of, of, of two soldiers on the battlefield grappling to the death. This is not long-range combat. This is not like a, a drone strike that has been ordered from a thousand kilometers away. This is hand-to-hand. -hand. It's face-to-face. -face. You are face-to-face -face with a demonic enemy. And so you need to stand in God's strength. We're not talking here about a cute little red guy with horns and a pitchfork. Satan describes, dis disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11.14. We need to realize that, that, that demons are deceivers. And we need to realize that they have real power, they have real authority, that Satan is indeed the ruler of this world. You need to understand that as long as you are in this world, you are an enemy territory. If you understood just how deceptive, how powerful, how dangerous your enemy was, you would be fleeing to Christ for the strength that only He can provide. A few years ago when, when Jane was at church, the pastor was talking about, uh, it was just it was the weekend I believe of the Shepherds Conference, and so the, the, the church was, was full of, there was quite a few pastors at their church. And the, the, the pastor, and he wouldn't mind me telling the story, the pastor joked, he said, he said, well, we've got all these pastors here, so bring it on, Satan. 
And almost at that exact moment, a guy came through one of the side doors, he burst through and stood at the front and started blaspheming right there in front of the church. And he said, okay, we didn't plan this. This is not, this is actually, this is, we don't know who this guy is. But he told, uh, he told me, he said, he said you, if you're going to sit down, you must, or if you're going to stay, you must be silent and sit down. And so he went and, and sat next to Jane, who just had heart surgery. Thankfully, she survived the, the ordeal. And he, he left a few minutes later. There was a woman at, at my church in Australia who had been, interestingly enough, quite involved in the occult. And, and she was, um, she'd been, been into clairvoyance and all those things. And, and I remember talking to her one time about, about spiritual warfare. And, and she said that, that she would, would say to, to the devil, she would say, back off hairy legs. Now, I'm glad nobody laughed because this is, she really thought that she could do this, that, that she could, could speak like that to the devil. But, but friends, we need to understand that we do not have the authority ourselves. That we do not engage directly against Satan. Even the angels do not engage directly in the sense when, in Jude 9, when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. And so even the archangel Michael was dependent on the strength from the Lord. We do not stand against him in ourselves, in our own strength. Do not get your theology from a Frank Peretti novel. Do not get your theology from a secular movie or book about the occult. Look to what the Bible says. Again, do not fall into the ditch of, of trying to fight him in your own strength, and don't fall into the other ditch of forgetting that he is there and that he is real. Both sides are underestimating his power. Both sides are underestimating the skill and deception that is involved here. Now, I do not want to sensationalize this. I do not want to, to, you to, to have a, a twisted and warped view that, that ends up really giving glory to the enemy for what he does. We need to be there. We need to realize that, that he is there and that he wants to kill us, but we need to turn our attention and focus on what God has given us in order to help us overcome. We need to understand what's at stake. We need to understand what the battle involves and who is fighting for us on our behalf. At the end of verse 12, we see where the battle takes place. It takes place in the heavenly places. Now, I find this hard for me to get my mind around, but the fact that there's actually demons present in the heavenly places. You can see it in Job 1 and 2 where, where the Lord and Satan are actually conversing in heaven. I don't understand that. But that's what the scriptures say. They say that, that, that somehow that the seat of these demonic authorities is actually in the heavenly places. But their influence is exerted here. It's exerted in this world. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And he has control over this evil world, 1 John 5, 19. And he is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But we also know here from the book of Ephesians that Christ is also seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. And this is also a mystery, but we somehow are, are seated there with Christ.
Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. And so there's, there's a battle that is taking place, a real and present battle that is taking place between the, the Lord and his angels and between Satan and his demonic forces. It's being waged in the heavenly places, but it extends to this world. This world, friends, is in darkness. But praise God that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13 And we know that Christ has won the victory. He won the victory for us at the cross. But the conflict is a present and real situation and problem in the lives of believers. This is another example of, of the already and not yet. Even though we positionally have victory in Christ, the full and final victory will not take place until the end of the age. So we must put on the heavenly armor and stand firm in God's strength until that day. According to Revelation uh, 20 verses 7 and 8, that, that at the end of the thousand years that Satan will be released from his prison to deceive the nations. That's, that's one of the main reasons why I can't be on millennium. Because, it, it, because we can't be in the millennial reign of Christ because Satan is present and is active now. He's present and active now. Otherwise, there would be no point of having this passage in your Bible. So we've seen what we're to do, be strengthened in God's might. We've seen how we're supposed to do it, by putting on the armor of God. We've seen why we're to stand, because we stand against the devil's schemes. We've seen why we need to take up the armor of God. We've seen who we're struggling against, the devil and his horde. And we've seen where the battle takes place, both in heaven and on earth. But now lastly, we see the third why in verse 13. Paul takes up, says, take up the whole armor of God. He says, lift it up, carry it. This is another way of simply saying, put it on. It's the same word that's used down in verse 16. It's, he's saying, take up arms. See, this armor comes from God and it is designed to protect you from the onslaught of the enemy. So take up your arm, the armor that God has given you and then you will be able to withstand. This is the only way that you will be able to withstand. Positive thinking will not help you. The prosperity gospel will not help you. Psychology will not help you. Meditation will not help you. Medication will not help you. You need the Lord's strength. You need His help. You need His armor. Now this word that is translated here with stand is really simply an amplification of the word stand. It means to resist by actively opposing pressure or power. And here the context of a battle, it means again to hold your ground, to stand firm in resistance against everything that the enemy is throwing at you. This is a defensive posture, not offensive. And so again here, the best defense is a good offense. We can see this elsewhere in God's Word as well. 1 Peter 5, 18 and 19. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
and also James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil in the strength that God has given, in the armor that God has provided. You need to take up the whole armor of God in order to be able to withstand in the evil day. And we are living in evil days. Paul's already said that in Ephesians 5.16. So this battle is a daily battle. And it's very likely what, what Paul had in mind here is the, the, the daily battle, but, but also those times when, when the, the battle rages against you the most powerfully, the most fiercely. Those times in your life when, when demonic assaults rage most violently against you. And, and you can think of some of those times in your life when you, you struggle with doubts, when you, when you struggle with fear, when you struggle with illness, when you struggle, when you struggle with relational strife. Those are the times when the, the battle is raging against you the most fiercely, and those are the times when you need to stand that much more firmly. And I believe here there's also a sense in which the Apostle Paul has in mind the end of time, the, the coming age, when the demonic forces will be unleashed, as is described in the apocalyptic passages of the New Testament, like Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation. That's a time when the battle is definitely going to rage the most fiercely. <laughs> Friends, the devil will bide his time until you are at your weakest. He will watch for you to loosen your belt, to forget your breastplate, to leave your shoes behind, to lay down your shield, to misplace your helmet, to let your sword get rusty, or to leave off prayer. And those are the times when he is going to hit you the hardest. You need to put on the whole armor of God. This is not multiple choice. You need it all if you're going to withstand in the evil day. And only then, once you've done all, stand firm. Only then will you not back down, not fall down, and not retreat. As CFD Moore said, this is not the picture of a march or of an assault, but of the holding of the fortress of the soul and of the church for the heavenly king. The decisive victory has been won. Final victory has been assured. This present battle is not about final victory, but about holding the ground that Christ has already won for you. When those Allied troops landed on that beach in Normandy and took the beachhead, the decisive battle was won. No, the war was, was not over. There were many, many more battles yet to be fought, but final victory was assured. Friends, our victory has been won for us by Christ on the cross. He defeated death for us. He defeated our flesh for us. He defeated the world for us. And He defeated Satan for us. He destroyed Satan. He destroyed his works. 1 John 3.8 This message is not meant to leave you in fear. It is meant to be a wake-up call. It's a call to arms. Now as you go down for fellowship in the gym... 
You're, you might be aware of the mural that's, that's on the wall there of, the, of this, the, the armor of God, it's called. But, but if you have a closer look, you'll see that that, that armor is not weaponry, it's sporting equipment. The, 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 the sword of the spirit, there's a hockey stick. Now that mural predates me by a long time and, and I've been, been wanting to get rid of it for a long time. But I, I, and I was going to take it paintbrush and cover it over this week, but I decided to wait. And, and so when we go down for fellowship, I want you to look at that and to remember that this is not a game. This battle that we are engaged in it is not a game. If you don't look at it today, you're, you're not going to see it again because it will be gone this week. But we are at war. We are at war. The devil and his demonic horde are powerful, but they are not omnipotent. They are cunning, but they are not omniscient. Your enemy has already been defeated by Christ at the cross. You are no longer under the dominion of Satan's power. Enter into the victory that Christ has won for you. Final victory is assured. Christ will return. Be strengthened in the strength of the Lord. Take up the whole armor of God and stand. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 Like the Puritan William Gurnall said in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor. When Satan finds the good man asleep, then he finds our good God awake. Therefore, thou art not consumed, because he changeth not. God does not change. He has already achieved the victory for you. You must stand in his strength. You will stand in his strength.